Okay, everybody. So what we're going to try to do this morning, just for a little bit, is I want us to go even go deeper into the crucifixion and maybe look at some ideas and some verses. It's kind of like digging for gold where you just get deeper and deeper and you find more and more nuggets the farther you go. And that's kind of the way I want it to be as we're looking at the crucifixion. And so we've been... We've been this has been our theme, right? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And our goal is to know, is to actually grow in knowledge, both information and experience. And our goal is to know Jesus Christ. And because of the word and, to know, to really get to know him and understand him, we need to know what is behind the crucifixion. What does the crucifixion show about him? He revealed himself through an event, not just through his words, right? And so we looked at this last week. The, the word that, the fancy word is penal substitution. Penal is punishment. And substitution is in, in, in someone else's place. And we've seen previously that God is going to satisfy his own justice. And he's going to punish sin. He's going to give people what they choose. But how God does so is his prerogative. God can punish the sinner or a substitute in the sinner's place. He has that prerogative to make that choice. And in the case of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God, there's three things the Bible tells us. God permitted substitution. God provided the substitute. And God became that substitute. And, and this concept of substitution, this is a little review from last week, is found everywhere in Scripture. And what I did last week is, and I'll just real quickly, is there are all of these verses with prepositional phrases, like for us, on behalf of us, in our place. All of these prepositional phrases have to do with substitution. So he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Even the Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin, there it is, for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and the curse, what is that curse of the law? When you break a law, it, you're, you're a criminal, you get punished. When you break a human law, you go to jail. Or you break a human law, you pay a fine. When you break God's law, you die. Right? Separation from Him. We've talked about that more earlier, though. A curse for us. Titus 2.14, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself, there it is again, for us. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
1 Peter 3.18. By the way, that phrase, of many, just so you recognize, that doesn't mean he, he only died for some people and not others. You're going to find this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Often it will use the word many. It means all. Because the idea is, when, you, when, when you're speaking of all, it's not a few people. It's many, many people. Does that make sense? But anyways, 1 Peter 3.18, but Christ also died once for sins, the righteous, there it is again, for the unrighteous. And 1 John 3.16, he laid down his life, there it is, for us. And so we talked about God providing a substitute, but more than that, he became the substitute. When the debt is not a thousand dollars or a million dollars or a trillion dollars, but an infinite amount of money, good luck finding a normal person to pay that debt. God says, I'm going to pay the debt. But I read this quote last week because this quote represents a lot of mainstream teaching now in the Christian church and evangelical church. It's a, by a book called The Lost Message of Jesus by Stephen Chalk. How have we come to believe that at the cross, this God of love, but, but, rare, but he's going to say God of love because he doesn't believe in a God of justice. He doesn't believe that the way the Bible presents justice as an attribute of God, that God has that attribute. He'll define justice differently that this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he hasn't even committed. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's not, yeah, he's yeah, not. It's like, like this is some knee-jerk reaction by God. He's not, he's I not. Know what to do. Oh, I'll throw my son at him. Yeah, he's not talking about how God spent a couple thousand years doing a sacrificial system to prepare for this. Mm -hmm. Teaching us atonement. Remember, atonement means to remove wrath or satisfy wrath. So is chalk right? Is the penal substitutionary view of atonement nothing more than cosmic child abuse? Chalk's accusation, it's based on a misunderstanding. Jesus was not an unwilling child, an unwilling son in this, in this event. He said himself, John 10, 15, 18, I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. He, what is he saying? He's saying, I have the authority. Nobody's forcing this on me. Because remember, he's God. This charge I received from my father, who is also God. Right? He's, he's saying the father and I both have the same authority in this. And here's the point. There's no conflict in the Trinity. Both the son and the father have the same nature and the same purpose. The, the voluntary substitution of the Son is the self-substitution of God. And one example is Titus 2, 13 to 14. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So 
Jesus is described as God and Savior. We looked at that last week. Who gave himself, that's Jesus as God, for us to redeem us. Self-substitution of God. But now that was all review. So for a few minutes, I want to talk about another common thing that you're going to find in a lot of teachers and pastors, the argument that I'm about to give you. Because they will say, even if Jesus was a willing participant, it still is not just. And there's something wrong with the idea of substitution. And here's what I mean by that. This is from a guy named Tom Smalley, a book called Atonement Today. And he has an article, Can One Man Die for the People? By what right or justice can punishment be imposed on anybody except the person who has committed the offense? It is the bearing of punishment, is the bearing of punishment not one of those things that cannot be done by one person for another? Even though I, who am innocent of the offense, should be willing to bear the punishment you have incurred in committing the offense, it would be an unjust judge that would permit, let alone organize, such an illegitimate transfer. Do you see what he's saying there? According to small, guilt and punishment cannot be incurred by one person and transferred to another person. Only people who sin are guilty. Only the guilty should be punished. And what he is saying is, the willingness of Jesus is not a satisfactory answer by itself. For if an innocent person suffers punishment for a crime in which that person bears no guilt, then it doesn't make any difference if he was willing or not. And, and, and he, they'll even go back to like when Moses said, well, don't kill Israel. Kill me instead. And God said, nope. And, and there are examples like that. More than that, there's tons of verses that seem to support what Tom Small is saying. I'll, let me give you an example. The innocent being punished for the guilty is considered a miscarriage of justice. The Bible condemns that. Genesis 18.25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Proverbs 17.15, Solomon says, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. 1 Kings 8.32, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants. Now listen to what he says here. This is, he says, judge, be a righteous judge. You are a righteous judge, God. Condemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they have done. Remember, we talked about that. And vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. So if that's biblical justice, and, and here's what I've read. Some of these scholars and theologians and pastors, well, is Christ not going to follow the same justice that his own word, right? Now to answer, does, that, does this make sense to you guys? 
And, and there, there's a famous guy named Brian Zand. He's real famous with millennials and young people. <laughs> and he has whole blogs how ridiculous the idea of a substitutionary sacrifice is. And he, and he says things like, "Real? in what way can an innocent person just step up and say, you know what, instead of killing the murderer, kill me instead. And he goes on and on and on about what we just said. That, that violates justice, that violates the Bible's own verses, and he just and he and he, but he he tears it all down and finally says, obviously this is not what happened on the cross. So why is penal substitution not unjust? Now try to follow with me here because what we're about to dive into for the next ten or fifteen minutes is really one of the core, I mean the, the bedrock of the crucifixion. Because it is more than just Jesus being punished in our place. So follow me. To answer that, we have to consider two things. Not just Jesus' substitution, but Jesus' representation. And you might say, well, what's the difference? I'll use a baseball analogy, even though I really don't play baseball. In simple substitution, someone takes the place of another person but does not represent that person. For example, a pinch hitter in baseball enters the lineup and he bats in the place of another hitter, right? He is a substitute for that player, but he doesn't represent that player. And here's as an example, the pinch hitter's performance doesn't affect the batting average of the player he replaces. So he's a substitute, but not a representative. On the other side, in simple representation, somebody acts on behalf of another person and serves as his spokesman, but he is not a substitute for that person. And here's that example. A baseball player has an agent who represents him in contract negotiations with the team, right? But as a representative, the agent does not replace the player. He just advocates for the player. Does that make sense? Now, but when we look at Jesus, Jesus was both a substitute and Jesus was a representative. And, and so what we need to look at is in what way was he our representative, not just our substitute? In the Old Testament, you, there's a high priest. And the high priest was different than all the other priests because there's the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or temple. And the high priest would enter the most holy place and when he stood before the ark which of the covenant with the angels on it, which is like the throne of God, he represented himself, the other priests, and all of Israel. And, so, and there's a lot of verses that say this. Leviticus 16, 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time now that he is the high priest. He enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement. Remember, atonement is to remove wrath or satisfy wrath for himself and for his house 
and for all the assembly of Israel. This is not substitution because if it's substitution, it's not for himself. It's for someone else in his place. This is representation. For every high priest chosen from among men, Hebrews 5.1, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, part of that representation, now here's the phrase that is at the core of the, the new, so many Old Testament verses and so many New Testament verses. And the phrase is, bear the sin. That does not mean bear the punishment. That is also mentioned in a lot of other verses. Bear the sin is different. Leviticus 10, 17. Why have you not, and he's talking to the high priest at the time, why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity or bear the sin, iniquity and sin are synonyms, of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. And you might say, well, Sam, what does bear the sin mean? It's used everywhere in Scripture. And it doesn't just refer to being punished for sin. It means to be guilty for sin. To be culpable, guilty for sin. That's what it means to bear the sin. The guilt, the deserving of that sin. And so I just give you two example verses of that. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, so there's a public court, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, this guy's a witness of the crime. Yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. If you're a witness to a crime and you refuse to speak, you, what does that mean? You are guilty of your own crime. Does that make sense? Numbers 9.13, but if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. What does that mean? The, the idea is he is guilty for breaking that law for ignoring the Passover, which was a command to attend, not just a suggestion, right? Now, Christ, what, what the Bible does is the Bible says Christ is our high priest, representing us, representing himself and ev all of humanity. So Hebrews 9.26, For Christ is entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. So he's not just like the Jewish high priest in the earthly tabernacle. But in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, there it is, on our behalf. That's representation. And because he's the representative of the whole human race, now here's where this gets important. He bore the sin of the human race. But remember what we said. What does bore the sin mean? 
It means the guilt, our guilt, is imputed or charged or ascribed to him, our guilt. Because, Isaiah 53, 12, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He numbered with them. That's a representation statement. That's not a substitutionary statement. Does that make sense? Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, the guilt of many. 1 Peter 2.23-24, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There it is again, judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That is not, that does, that's not talking about being an innocent man being punished in our place. That's talking about an innocent man bearing our guilt, having our guilt put to his account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what does this mean for our sake, look at this phrase. He made him to be sin. Well, we, we know that that doesn't mean that Jesus committed sin. It doesn't mean he acted in sin. It doesn't mean he had sinful thoughts. It doesn't mean he had sinful intentions. What does it mean? It means that our sin and guilt was imputed. By impute, I mean attributed, ascribed charged to him. And to understand this, I used a fancy term. What is, you guys know what the word vicarious means? It means in, your in another person's place, right? And liability means guilt, right? You're guilty for something. There are a lot of examples in everyday life where we all understand vicarious liability. What do I mean by that? Where a, a representative is guilty for the wrongdoings of the people he represents, even if he didn't commit the wrongdoings himself. In these cases, guilt is imputed. Remember that? Attributed, charged, described to the representative. This is important. Because of his relationship with those he represents not because he committed the same wrongdoings. And, and I'll, can I give you three examples? And, and you can think about where you've actually seen these type of examples. A team captain is punished for his team's failings. Right? Well, they might fire a coach for, for the way his team played wrongly or badly, right? A squad leader is in the military. A squad leader is punished for his troop misbehaving, right? They might have all went out and just got as drunk as a skunk and just blew up the town, you know, in Iraq. 
And that, and, that, and that squad leader might have been home reading the Bible and praying. But guess what? He could get punished for that. Because, not because he did what they did, but because of the unique relationship he had with his troop. He's their representative. An employer is liable for his employees' illegal acts. I could give you tons of examples of actual cases where this is part of law. And, and a team captain, a squad leader, an employer is not liable because he was negligent or complicit or wrong in his actions. But for one reason, the relationship that the representative has with the people he represents. And that's what Christ was with us. I'm almost done. Just give me five more minutes because I gotta, now we got to get into like more of the meat of this. Now, Christ's representation is even more unique because in these examples, here's where Christ might be different. Christ, before he became our representative, already knew how bad we were, already knew how evil we were, already knew how wicked we were. And he, and, and he, he knowing that the people he represents are already guilty, he says, I'm going to represent them. Okay, almost done. Jesus chose to be in union with sinful humanity and to represent them. How? That's where we're going to go. Remember when we talked all the way back to the incarnation? And I made a statement. You may not remember back then. I said, if the incarnation isn't true, then the crucifixion and the atonement are meaningless. Right? But the question is, why? Because through his incarnation is where he becomes our representative. Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. What does that phrase mean? What, what, what does that mean he was made lower than the angels? That is the incarnation. He, was, he wasn't made an avenger, a superhero, an angel, a high, human hybrid he was made a full human, lower than the angels. And then it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here's what it's saying. Being made lower than the angels refers to his incarnation. And the purpose of his incarnation is representation. As a representative of sinful humanity, he experienced death which is the guilt and punishment of sin for everyone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus wasn't just an innocent substitute punished for a guilty party. He was a representative bearing our guilt because of the relationship. Okay, through his baptism... Then Jesus came, Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you, you come to me. What were they getting baptized for? They were sinners and they were getting baptized to what? 
Repent and be forgiven, right? But Jesus answered him, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And people have always wondered, what does that mean? Through baptism, Jesus demonstrated something. His identification with sinful humanity. Only sinners go under the water. So, as the Jesus says, if I don't become your representative, righteousness will not happen. Righteousness will not be fulfilled. What does that mean? It, means, it doesn't mean that God won't be righteous. It means it won't be fulfilled in... Not, he's not talking about God. He must be talking about people. But how? Humanity's sin and guilt was imputed to him and his righteousness and innocence have been imputed to them who believe in him. And then we lastly, we did the incarnation baptism in his crucifixion. Look at this verse. This verse hopefully it'll make more sense to you now. I only have two slides left. Just this one and the next one. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Because we have concluded this, this one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. This one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Now, follow with me here what this verse means. At the cross, Jesus demonstrated his union with humanity in their sin and guilt. Right? Remember, substitute representative, right? Substitute representative. He was our substitute in that he was punished in our place and he voluntarily received the suffering we deserve. Substitute. But then we've got representative. He was also a representative in that he represented, he represented us before God. So what that means is his punishment was our punishment. His punishment was our punishment because he was our representative. So he was not merely punished instead of us as a substitute, but we, no, no, this, we were punished by proxy. You know what I mean by proxy, a representative? And like at a shareholders meeting, they represent you in that meeting. It was not just him punished instead of us, but we were punished by proxy. Not just in our place, but also on our behalf. Not just instead of us, but also as one with us. In other words, and this is what Paul is saying, his death was our death. Does that make sense? Okay, last slide. I'm going to just a couple of quick final thoughts here. Christ is united with humanity through his incarnation. This is the basis for what was accomplished in the atonement. And that's two things. Bearing our sin on our behalf as a representative, our guilt, and receiving our punishment in our place as a substitute. You guys got that? So, through the incarnation, that's what Christ united himself with humanity 
and was able to accomplish these two things. But there's another side to this. This is what we'll finish with. We are united with Christ through faith. And this is the basis for applying to us what was accomplished in the atonement. Because this is where people, I have heard a pastor say this, the cross and the atonement is God shouting to the world, I'm not mad at you anymore. I'm not going to punish you anymore. I'm just going to say you are all forgiven. Because they're only looking at what was accomplished. But there's a, not just what was accomplished, there's the second question of how do you apply what was accomplished? And here's the issue. Whatever was accomplished on the cross, God is not going to force it on one human being. He's not going to say, I am going to make you receive the innocence I'm offering you. I'm going to make you receive me as your representative and as your substitute. I'm going to make you justified, declared innocent, justified, never sinned. God doesn't work like that. Because he'll never violate a person's free will. The moment he violates a person's free will, he has robots and not people. He'll never do that. So he says, to apply what I've done, it requires faith. Faith is to receive it, to believe it, right? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what we've been talking about. A righteousness that is what? By faith. Received by faith. So Christ's unity with us has two sides. Imputing our guilt to him as a representative and his righteousness to us. That's the other side of it. As our representative, not only did he stand in our place and say, your guilt is mine, but he said, my innocence and righteousness is yours. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be, to be sin who knew no sin. So that, and here's the second side, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that an amazing phrase? The sinful life we live with its guilt was imputed to him. The perfect life he lived with its righteousness and innocence, he charges it to our account. These are all, this is all legal language that the Bible uses, by the way. Now, last verse, last verse. Because of this union, his death, his resurrection, and his new life become ours as well. Ours as well. Last verse, Romans 6, 4 to 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So these are just a bunch of verses that help us to understand. Right? And this is an amazing thought because... If it was only substitution, it would still be this sense of just carrying the weight of guilt and shame for sin, right? 
but I know I deserve punishment, but he took it. But to actually think that he took your guilt and shame and sin and said, you charge that to my account. You put that on my shoulders. I'm going to not just bear your punishment. I'm going to bear your sin. So he completely clears the deck. The only thing left for you is to receive a bunch of righteousness and innocence from him. And it's a sealed deal. Christians, not because of our decisions, but because of our, just our faith in him, right? Not because of our works, but because of our faith in him, should be the least guilty people on the planet. We should feel the least guilt on the planet, the least shame on the planet. And we know why. None of us are under the illusion that we're like super holy and righteous. I, I've met a couple people that were under that illusion. And it's, who's, you know, I don't know how you maintain that, right? When, and your, your wife or spouse will remind you anyways. But if we so understand the crucifixion, you can wake up, every, you know what I'm saying? That's why when we sin, un, when most, uh, and other religions, when they sin, if you're Catholic when you sin, what do you got to do, man? You got to do penance, you got to do mass, you just got to like work your way out of that. If you're Buddhist, you got to go to a temple and chant and do circles, right? You know, there's a, if you're a believer and you sin, you don't have to imprison yourself at all. You don't have to run from God at all. Even if you sin again and again and again. And again and again and again. You can say, I can run literally immediately to the Father because of the blood of Jesus. Because his blood, when the Bible says blood, it has all of this behind that meaning of that phrase. Blood just means his death. Does that make sense? That's why Christian that's why we can repent. You know what I'm saying? It's wonderful. So, okay. Any thoughts before we take communion? Can we go back to the slide where, um, just keep going back, which was a Clark or what was it? Oh, way back here. Oh, back there? Yeah, there? I had a lot of slides. Or maybe when you're talking, I mean, basically what they're talking about is that somehow the substitution and the representation isn't enough. Well, they're saying, they're saying substitution isn't enough because they don't understand representation. Got it. And that's why, that's why we need to have both. They're taking all these Christians that teach penal substitution and saying, yeah, but... It, it contradicts it's the Bible itself. That's why we have to add representation. And it takes time, not just one Sunday, it takes time to be able to grasp, not just bearing punishment, but bearing guilt. Not just in our place, but as a representative. So. But then are these people proposing that we were created? Uh, we can't save ourselves. Are they proposing that we can save ourselves? They're saying that No, what, 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 what basically, and I don't want to get into it too much, is basically... Oh. A, a, a massive teaching in the church is that God's justice is not punitive. It is restorative. Okay. 
And the reason they believe that is because they don't believe in what's called original sin. They believe that I'm bad because of my environment, which means something else caused me to make all these bad decisions. It was my schooling, my economics, my parents, my, the chemicals in my brain. They don't believe in original sin. It's a, it's a doctrine that is being abandoned. So, so if I do a bunch of bad stuff, it was because of my environment. So justice is restore the factors that change my environment and I'll become a better person. But in the Bible, original sin is real. I deserve punishment and death is real. So justice is not just restorative, it's punitive. So the only answer then is the cross with, with substitution in my place and representation of my guilt. Does that make sense? I just took, in two seconds, I just took you through. It just seems like the argument, though, is that somehow this doesn't totally redeem us, and somehow we have to be able to redeem ourselves. And that's well, not what they're really arguing is, is that we're not as lost as we think. And that, and that forgiveness is really not, I'm not going to punish you. Forgiveness is, hey, just come on back into the family. Because of your own environment, you didn't realize you needed to be in the family. I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, it okay. does. A shot? Did you have a quick question? Oh, I was just going to say, um, your image of the squad leader being punished. Yeah. I don't think that even comes close to it. Because, I mean, that'll go all the way up to generals sometimes. Yeah. I mean, And that's because of the relationship of the general with the leaders beneath him and his, the, the, and that's such a great, because that's literally the example, the high priest example, it's in a religious context, not a military context, but that's exactly what it was. So, yeah. Okay, so we're going to take communion, and when we take communion, People, some people actually wonder, what am I actually supposed to do with this, right? <laughs> the juice and the bread. You know, some people take it their whole lives. Um, when we take communion, it is a way to, the, the, the juice represents his blood shed. That is death. The bot, the, 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 we've got these little pita chip things from Trader Joe's because it's more Middle Eastern than bread. That represents his broken body, which is also death. Shed blood, broken body, death. And we are remembering, we're saying, we're remembering his death, but here's what, and here's what today, it's not just for us, as a, but it's he united with us, right? As a representative, it was, he died our death. It's our death, and he took our punishment, but it's our punishment by proxy. Does that make sense? And to remember that, because there, you can't add to it. That's the whole point. You can't add to it. You just take it, right? And then, if, and, 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 and what's wonderful is if you have sinned this week, if you've yelled at your wife or, done, or, or, or sinned in a thousand different ways, because of this, you can just say, Father, forgive me. Father, forgive me. It's appropriating. It's applying what he already has done, right? And you can walk, and you can walk out because you already are clean, but also you can just walk out with the sense of being clean, right? Father, forgive me for that. And the third thing is, 
the effects of sin get dealt with on the cross. So there are a hundred examples, thousands, where even in communion people were healed mentally, emotionally, physically. You know what I mean? Even from what's happened to you this week. You know? Because it not just, but the effects, if you deal with the root, all, those, all the branches and the fruit dies, right? You deal with sin and the effects of sin and the fall begin to wither, right? 